Welcome back to take four of this book club episode. Yeah, the uh, no problems here. I'm going to murder Kendrick after this episode. But why? <sighs> anyway, so we're on chapter three of the case for Christian nationalism. As usual, if you have not listened, go back to the first one because you'll have no clue what we're talking about in this episode. But a few updates before we hop into it. It's going to be a long one because this was the longest chapter in the book so far. 50 pages. Um, I want to talk about um, something we talked about last episode, which was Van Drunen. We were not familiar with him. However, I did some extracurricular research. And Van Drunen is the proponent for modern two-kingdom theology, also called radical two-kingdom theology. Um, which is different from the two kingdom of Augustine or Calvin. Um, It's the radical two kingdom that says um, the heavenly kingdom does not touch the earthly kingdom and we do nothing on earth except the church. So it's a kind of two kingdoms that we don't agree with, huh? Yeah, so we agree with Wolf on his critique of that. However, I don't think we fit within that, um, what did he call us, new Calvinist movement, if that's what it is. Yeah. Um, there was something else I was going to say. What was I going to say? Uh, oh, it doesn't matter now. Mm-hmm. Well, if I think of it, I'll bring it up. Yes, sir. All right. So let's hop into chapter three, loving your nation, the nation and nationalism. Um, and in this chapter, he's really going to give us a lot of definitions, one in particular on ethnicity which is just going to absolutely destroy a lot of arguments yeah um yeah we'll just i'll just leave it there yeah we'll get there Mm -hmm. but the first section is on his method Mm -hmm. um kendrick was there anything that stood out to you on the method of um christian nationalism honestly it's uh i like that i think that um that was really good um i think that he does do pretty good with uh, how the how christianity sort of um expounds our natural feelings towards each other yeah this is very natural law mm-hmm. the first half of the chapter which i liked mm-hmm. i really did like it i mean some some more radical theonomist guys don't want to even touch natural law. I'm okay with it to a degree. Uh, yeah, I'm okay with it. <laughs> I, I'm probably less okay with it yeah. than you. But That's I fine. No okay. one's perfect like I am. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, here, here's his method on page 118 um, in the second paragraph. My method of approach is different from most. Instead of unfolding the nation as a concept or analyzing it with historical examples, I use a phenomenal, phenomenological Phenom- yeah. goodness. Why does he have to use big words? Method to uncover and reveal the nation as we exist and dwell in it. I attempt to bring to consciousness the fundamental relations of people and place. Relations so familiar to us that we are largely unaware of them. Yeah, and... If you look at section two, that's exactly what he does. Yes. Well, it, really, he builds up to it this whole first half of the chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, but he also says, um, additionally, this chapter shows 
that each of us has a people group or an ethnicity. Um, each people group can be conscious of itself and that each people group has the right to be for itself. These last two elements are essential to nationalism, which I discussed briefly at the end. Yeah, that's one thing I really like is that he's not really... He's saying sort of the opposite of multiculturalism. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe that um, multiculturalism is wrong. Um, I think we do have the right to love our own country. Um, and if you what we're about to touch is him not being a ethnicity. Yes. So. Yeah, if you've been on Twitter at all, the Kenneth um, accusation has been flying around. Honestly, I don't even think it's this chapter, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think it's. I think someone read like the intro. Yeah, and was just, <laughs> and was just like, "Oh, uh, he's a chemist." But after reading this chapter, it'll just prove they didn't read the whole book. Yeah. Is there anything else on that section before we move on? Which way, oh Western man? That's right. Amen. The suicide of the West or its revitalization? That's right. Yep. Mm-hmm. Only one of two options. Better pick. Mm-hmm. All right, well, let's get to section two of the book. Um, And he starts out with, um, the title is People, Place, and Things. And the first section is Space and Place. Now, I probably shouldn't say this, Hmm. but this section really just kind of made my eyes roll. And I was just like... Really? Yeah, I was just like, oh. Okay, well, let's get into that because I'm curious what made you. Well, it's not because I think it was bad. Oh, okay. I just thought it was just, honestly... It was the driest thing I've ever read. Oh, I, there was something later on in this chapter I I felt was dry, but we'll get there. Um, but here's what I highlighted on the top of page 121. Place is a spatial term, though it is not some synonymous with site or generic space. In my usage, place is meaning-invested space generated by human activity whose meaning is entirely dependent on a human relation to it. For example, we designate some space to be a house because we relate to it as a place for human dwelling. So all that to say, um, this isn't just, you know, a place where you exist. This is a place where you um, kind of work and assign meaning to. It has meaning to you. It's not just some random place. Yeah. um, You know, you go down, uh, you go down... uh, I twenty is over in this area. Yeah. Um, and you know, you go down I twenty, you get to work. You know, you have, and then you go down I twenty uh, to go home. You know. So you gave away our location. Now they're gonna get us, Kenny. Yeah, we're all. <laughs> twenty not, is a long highway, though. To be fair, dude, it goes through several states. We never even like mentioned like where we are. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but there's a. And there's even a difference between I-20 and then your home. Yeah. There's different assigned meanings, and one is going to be more um, sentimental to you. Mm -hmm. The highway, I feel nothing towards. Yeah. Home, though, I'm like, all right. Mm -hmm. You, there's a difference between McDonald's and your home. Yeah. (laughs) But also, he's taking the concept of the home, which we assign meaning to, and he's going to expand this into the nation natural affections for your nation yeah that's what he's building on here um is there anything you highlighted before i read some more no all right 
So page 122, um, second paragraph. He says, it would be a mistake, however, to limit the meaning of places to their basic functionality or their universal meaning. All can recognize a house as a house, but only some call it a home. Of course, as a concept, home is universally understood. And then he says, this distinction between house and home is crucial for our purposes here, and I discuss it farther below. We shall not de demote these particular meanings in comparison with universal ones. Relating a house as a home, a particular relation, certainly matters more for our well-being in this world than simply our relation to a house as house. Everything that he said and everything that you highlighted in that kind of like reminds me of like a Hobby Lobby like oh, yeah? sign. You yeah. know, like <laughs> home is where the heart is. Or yeah. like It's not a house. It's a home. <laughs> <laughs> but what he's getting at is, I mean, there's a special, we know what a house is. Yeah. But there's only one home to us. Yeah. I'm Our really neighbor has a house, but it's not to us a home. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I know what you're talking about. It's just that. <laughs> Uh, I'm not sure why, but I'm kind of busting his chops, <laughs> and I'm not sure why, but... Well, he's appealing to just what comes naturally to us. And yeah. It, it's, it's a little um, embellished language, but I guess. I I agree with all this. You know? Yeah. Uh, there's a difference between... Uh, what is it? Um, there's a difference between my neighbor's home. Yeah. And if I go there and lay down and go to sleep in his bed, mm -hmm. uh, it's going to... It's going to, like, I'm probably going to get killed. Um, <laughs> if meanwhile, if I go to my home, go take off my clothes and go to sleep. Or even if you're like that kid and you reach an age where when you, you know, have a sleepover, mm -hmm. you kind of just want to go home. Exactly. Like, maybe when you're little, it doesn't matter so much. It's kind of fun being at someone else's house. Mm -hmm. Once you get in those, like, teenage years, you're like, I just want to be at my house. I call it being getting out of the fridge. Getting out of the fridge, okay. Yeah, because you know how like a milk kind of spoils yeah. out of the fridge? You know, if I say, I say I've been out of the fridge too long. And, oh, okay, you know, I, I start it. to smell, <laughs> you know. You can tell we're introverts. Coagulated, you know. <laughs> I look like cheese. All right. Well, <laughs> I think we've adequately covered <laughs> that section. Yeah. So let's get on to the next one where the title is Socialization and Meaning. The first sentence, he says, much of the meaning of our world was handed down to us and we adopted it through socialization, hmm. which I think is pretty undeniable. Well, I have a big problem. He used the word socialization. Oh, boy. He's a socialist. He's a socialist. No, he's not. He, he's a chemist <laughs> and a socialist That's at true. the same time. I read socialism in there. So <laughs> there we go. I'm going to run with it now. But he also says on page 123, um, the second paragraph, but places such as streets embody more than rules for us. We take on dispositions and relations to them. We train them, um, knowing that our children are not machines or computers, but creatures of habit. We train them to have cautious disposition towards the street. We want them to feel something in relation to it. Mm -hmm. So this is just expanding on his point. Um, we're socialized to have to assign meanings to things so yeah. like a child they're socialized to say hey that's a dangerous place mm -hmm. be cautious around it look both ways now uh, let's get sort of deeper with that sure um we talk about the house we're talking about our neighbor's house mm -hmm. well my neighbor's house <laughs> uh 
being like a like not being our home i don't get naked and then you know i sure hope not and then uh and then put on pajamas and go like yeah yeah so but our parents taught us what we do when we enter a guest's home um for me it was um you know be polite um you know uh take your shoes off and then uh you know be polite uh, ask them to do the dishes if they give you food you yeah know. yeah you're a guest there you're not a guest at your own home mm -hmm. and there's also a way where at your home you treat the guest that would be different than if you were the guest mm -hmm. i mean this is this sounds like we're just talking about basic things mm -hmm. which we are but this is again it's expanding beyond just the home well i think this section kind of interested me because mm -hmm. of the fact that um it's sort of how you teach kids you know you don't you know, you teach them like being at a funeral is different than being at a yeah. being at an arcade. Yeah. Uh, you don't run wild whenever you're in a funeral. You dress differently when you go to a funeral. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's just. I mean, anywhere you go to, you have assigned meaning. Mm -hmm. It's undeniable. We can give a million examples. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, we aren't aware of the assigned meaning. We're just kind of existing in that space. Mm -hmm. But when you think about it, there is. And also, that's. Being at a church is different than yes. like being at a rock and roll concert. Mm -hmm. At least some, I think. Some. Some. <laughs> Maybe not Driscoll's church, but not Driscoll's. Church. All right. Um, one last thing on this section at the bottom of 124. <clears throat> he said, "By aid of our parents and others, we are socialized into a social world, a world of places, each with its rules, appropriate disposition, and lodged sentiments." So that seems like a good place to uh, summarize what he yeah. said. Uh, All right. Imagine like treating like the government building like an arcade or like. Yeah. Mm. It's just, yeah. It's basic stuff here. Mm. It's pretty hard to argue with. I don't know why people hate this book. <laughs> mm. But let's get on to the next section. Memory and sentiment. Um, I'll just read the first section. Memory is an essential element of place, creating sentiment between people and place. Sentiment here is a sort of um, af affectivity that is generated by time and activity and intergenerational love. So we understand this. I mean, being sentimental about your childhood home, um, that's because of intergenerational love. Yeah. I mean, again, just basic stuff. Oh, and he even says this. This is his example. The house of one's youth is not merely another house among houses. It is your childhood home. As the place of your first time and activity, it is set apart from others' houses. Um, he said, it is an unavoidable, unavoidable product of your activity in that space. An activity that generated familiar, familiarity and lodged memory. If one's childhood was generally positive, he relates to that space with positive affection. Same thing. I think that cuts both ways. I mean, if you have a negative childhood, um, you're going to have probably some negative um, yep. feelings towards that place. But ideally, it's going to be positive affections. Yeah, if you get a car accident on a yeah. 287, you know, you're just going to be... You're a little more stressed on 287. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we understand that. I mean, driving by your childhood home, you're like, man, that's where I grew up. Mm -hmm. Love that place. Car man that was my childhood home yeah i hated that place 
which I think we're fostering a generation that feels that second option and not the first yeah. option. Mm-hmm. And I think he's trying to um, prevent that. Yeah. Home is for like kids to like run naked and the <laughs> Why does it always come back to being naked? <laughs> Look, you know He spent his childhood naked, I guess, guys. Pretty much. <laughs> All right. Now here's the last paragraph of this section. Um we all have unique places like this, but I should emphasize that the spaces of memory are typically mundane places for common everyday activities. The town square, high school, local park, shopping mall, and little league ballparks are such places. Indeed, one's hometown or even a wider region like the country is a place, uh, is a place, a space of memory. So, yeah, we have different, um, affections for different places Mm -hmm. different memories with different places Mm -hmm. we have a different memory for the town we grew up in than um, some random town you've never driven through yeah and uh, I'm probably going to get ahead with this statement but uh, I love the US more than I love China yeah I visited Mexico I hate Mexico Uh, but even (laughs) you just ruined I was trying to I was going to help you and then you ruined it because I was going to say that doesn't mean he hates China. Well, it just I means he has a different... He has uh, ordered loves. And then you said, I hate Mexico. <laughs> Look, I mean... Yeah. I don't hate China. <laughs> I don't hate the Mexicans. Yeah, I know. I know what you mean. I hate Mexico in general. Yeah, it's kind of a trash country. Trump it, said something about that, right? Yeah, and he was right. It's trash. <laughs> oh, boy, we're canceled now. All right. Time and intergenerational love. Anything you'd like to... Highlight Kendrick before I um, hog all this. Um, basically, the first is memory uh, temporal temporalizes a place. Temporalizes place. Uh, this as embodied memory in places generates a connection between past, present, and future events. Uh, I add the events part. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, if we have a good memory about that place, we will love we will love that place. Mm-hmm. Um, I have, I love my uh, grandma's house, and sometimes I even still think about it. Yeah. Um, and in fact, even though like people are there, I would still go and visit. I would still go go visit it, even though people have moved in. They have, re- they really like revamped the place. Yeah. But still, I, <laughs> I miss the uh, single story room, where every where I'm cramped because I'm too big. <laughs> My grandma was like four eleven. <laughs> and Mexican ladies are short. They are, uh, <laughs> and that's the thing is that I I I would love I love that uh, she would crank it up to like eight degrees, like in the spring. Oh my gosh, that's horrible. How do you think I felt? <laughs> so, anyways, yeah. Yeah, but even that, I mean, there's layers to this because like I would have affection for my grandparents' house. But I think I'd feel more affection towards my own house than my grandparents' house. But obviously, I feel more affection for my grandparents' house than, say, my my friend's house. Mm-hmm. So there's layers to this. Yeah. Um, do you? I think you would love like a house you, like your first house. You know, mm-hmm. that has like a special memory to it. Yeah, and like we would love our county before we loved our state and our state before we loved the country Wait, in our country before we loved other countries. You're supposed to say that you love the federal government. (laughs) 
if the feds are listening, I love the government. I am a good citizen. <laughs> I pay taxes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, 128, um, second paragraph. Since many people today lack this intergenerational experience of inherited land, I'll focus for a moment on things. Family heirlooms. Sorry, family. Family heir- heirlooms. Family heirlooms are, by their nature, objects with high effective value, though they often have little market value. Yeah. So, what was the movie that I saw where um, there was like a soldier who smuggled in some coin mm-hmm. in his butt? in the war and gave it to his son and it's worth like nothing but the son was like man my grandpa went through a lot to give me this oh wait uh i don't remember what it is i saw it somewhere was it recently i think so was it the martin scorsese movie no maybe i don't think so okay anyways y'all understand the point i'm making yeah. Um, the coin is not worth a lot, but it has that sentimental value. Yeah. I have a, a shell casing mm-hmm. uh, from when we went shooting one time. And that's going to be, that's worth like zip. It might be even worth it, be worth in the negatives. Yeah. But, uh, well, actually, I think I know someone who can reshell that. But anyways, um, uh, but anyways, that's, uh, that, that has sentimental value to me, even though it's probably, it's worth jack squat. Yeah. Yeah, and he's saying that because, you know, property, the government has been um, trying to take it because you can't really pass it on without the government taxing the absolute crap out of you. Yeah. So what do we got now? We got coins and shell casings. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But, yeah, you all understand the point. Whether you have a house passed down to you or heirlooms, you understand the concept. Yeah. Um, I'm going to move on to the next section, unless you have anything else. Not really. All right. The next section is like where everything gets, where it gets fun. All right. Well, page 132, familiarity. Kind of halfway down the first paragraph. Familiarity is the background condition of our ease of activity and confidence of action and our sense of home and self-fittingness in a place. Your house is a home because your activity in it has made it a sort of extension of yourself. You are at home when home when home because in a sense you are at home with yourself when in it. Man, he could really sell like Hobby Lobby yeah, no, stuff. That's so deep. Oh. <laughs> Hobby Lobby should hire a wolf on like retainer or something <laughs> like that. Yeah, but what he's saying is true. Like it it it's home because we're there. It's home because that's where the heart is. That's right. Amen. <laughs> that's really what he said, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's right. I guess I'm going to hang that on my wall now. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Hobby Lobby, the store for Christian nationalism. I guess so. Live, laugh, love. Wait, what? <laughs> do they really sell that? Anyways. I'm sure they do. All right. Um, second paragraph. Familiarity is not limited to the private sphere, however. One's neighborhood and town... The marketplace, playgrounds, and landscape, and many other places are places of familiarity. And we, I already kind of touched on this. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it expands. Mm-hmm. Um, the first place you're going to love is your home. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to expand from that to a lesser degree to your town, mm-hmm. your county, 
It's going to expand from that to a lesser extent to your state. And it's going to expand from that to a lesser extent to your country. Mm-hmm. And then it expands from that to a lesser extent towards the world. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, for instance, you know, I have a familiarity with uh, with a supermarket here. Yeah. And uh, I hate it. It's a bad familiarity <laughs> because it's always busy. Uh-huh. But... Um, I have a good familiarity with uh, with another store that's just like, you know, because it has cheap stuff and uh, people ra- rarely get rowdy there. Yeah. Yeah, it's like the Waffle House in the nice part of town versus the wa- Waffle House in the bad part of town. Yeah, the bad part of, one, the bad part of town <laughs> is, the one in the bad part of town is better. <laughs> it's a dinner and a show. There we go. I mean, those are the best ones. Exactly. But you have to go like super late for them to start fighting. Uh, it depends on the area. Depends on the area? Oh, yeah. Ooh. Trust me. I've been to Waffle House many times. We should, like, go to Waffle House and, like, record there. They would not be able to hear us over the screams. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right, 134, um, the last paragraph of this section. The lesson for us today, being in a time of radical and hostile change, is that we must become consciously aware of home of those latent affections that we naturally leave in the background of life, these affections now need to be articulated, affirmed, and protected. Mm-hmm. So we knew this is where he was going with it. Um, with This is what's going to lead to a sense of nationalism mm-hmm. and a love for one's country above other places. If you hate your country, you're not going to care. Yeah. But if you cultivate these affections you're going to naturally want to see the best for your country. Yeah, and I was about to say something, but... Huh, go ahead. It, w- it was... Um, Dude, I need to drink real quick. It's actually... Um, you see, when we love our country, we want the best for it. Well, there's a reason why uh, Sanders want to pass, like... What was it? What was the Texas bill that like gave like eight billion to like Ukraine and nine billion oh my to gosh, Israel? I don't know. And it was supposedly like revamp the border. So dumb. Uh, so dumb. And then Joe Biden said, "You see, these were Repu- these mega Republicans don't <laughs> love the country because they did not pass that bill that gave eight. That billion. was going to give money to Ukraine. Yeah, stupid. So you have so." It's the reason why these senators hate our country. Yeah. Well, it's not even the senators. I mean, most of our generation, mine and yours, hate the country. Yeah, exactly. And not that they don't have reason to hate it, because they do. But it's like, are you going to hate it, or are you going to choose to love it and make it better? Yeah, there's a popular... Oh, gosh, it was... Oh, wow, I'm old. Uh, (laughs) It was a popular song back in my day. Um, it was by this band called the Orwells. Okay. And they you said, are old. "Yeah, I know. I, <laughs> I'm old." They said, uh, "Hey, forefathers, I'm not your son." Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's just um, not honoring your father and your mother, right there. Yeah. And honestly, uh, that guy hates his nation. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you want things to improve, you got to cultivate these affections. That's the point of that first section. Why do you think that there are senators for like that stay in office for like ten for like 
50 years and do nothing. Oh, yeah. But they... Uh, well, they do nothing for our country. They yeah. do it for other countries, though, by sending them loads of money. Yeah, it's because they want the money yeah. and hate our country. All right, well, let's get into section three, and this is titled Nation. Did we already uh, summarize it, basically? I think so. Mm-hmm. He's just building off natural affections. Mm-hmm. Now, Nation, this is where it's going to get interesting, because this is where he um, defines a lot of terms that he has been misrepresented in. And um, the first thing I highlighted is on 134, towards the middle. Here I assume what I've shown before, namely, that what is most meaningful to our lives and what is required to live well are particu- particularity and sharing that particularity with others. Particularity is distinctive to a people not only with regard to people, but also to a people in place. Mm-hmm. So here he's starting to build the idea of this also revolves around a people and not just a place. Yeah. Um, is there anything you'd like to say before I move on? Yeah. Uh, and then my guess canceled. Oh boy, here um, we go. So that is why that um, that is why um, Robert E. Lee would uh, <laughs> would fight. <laughs> For his home state of Virginia, yeah, rather rather than the South, I mean, rather than the North. Yeah, he actually wanted to free his slaves. He, well, he did free yeah. the slaves. He intended to always, but he wanted to, he wanted to fight for his homeland. And actually, if you read the Civil, uh, some Civil War uh, first, if you read some primary sources on the Civil War, most of them wanted to just fight for uh, fight for their country. Yeah, Ein state. Yeah, um, it's because they had that particularity mm-hmm. uh, in a pl- in a place and time. Yep, can't wait to get canceled from that one. <laughs> but I agree, obviously. Um, page one thirty-five, um, second paragraph towards the middle. This chapter critiques that ideology of universality by showing that each person has an ethnicity with a delimited people group and by insisting that each people group ought to self-affirm and act for itself. Self-affirm. Yes. <laughs> Affirm yourself in your gender identity. Exactly. That's what I read into Yep, it. that's true. We should get on Twitter and tell everyone. Exactly. Look, no. That's <laughs> you want to affirm people, everyone. That's so true. That's what he said. But obviously this is against multiculturalism. He's saying an ethnicity is a people group with shared interests that should be protected and affirmed. Mm-hmm. That's the opposite of multiculturalism. Look, he wants people to be affirmed. I'm not sure why you're arguing <laughs> with me against this. That's true. Context does not matter. Did I just highlight the uh, annual uh, everyone else debate? Owen Strahan debate? Owen Strahan debate, yeah. Yeah, well, let's keep going. More importantly, it provides an important premise for my justification of Christian nationalism. A Christian people whose good is found both in cultural particularity and a universal religion can and must be for itself as a distinct people in the interest of earthly and heavenly good for itself and its posterity. So you want to know what I think the real issue, what the real debate is on Twitter? What? I think what Stephen is saying is against multiculturalism 
and instead of saying that, it sounds worse to say kinism. Mm -hmm. But I think the guys that are saying kinism mm -hmm. are actually multiculturalists. Yeah. I think they're either intentionally or accidentally confusing terms on yeah. purpose. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I don't know if that's what it is, but that's what it seems like. Oh, I agree. Um, that's what it really seems like, is that they're really rooting for multiculturalism. Yeah, anyways, um, that's what's happening on Twitter, and obviously multiculturalism is stupid. We've made that clear, so that shows what side we're on. Yeah. Uh, by the way, thanks. Uh, I would like to thank Chocolate Knox on the on the mic. Um, yeah. You know, he helped me kind of sort these ideas out. And Stephen Wolf even went on there. Really? Yeah, he was on there for an episode. So hmm. that's interesting. Yeah, I know, right? All right, bottom of page 135. I use the terms ethnicity and nation almost synonymously. Though I use the former to emphasize the particular features that distinguish one people group from another. Since every people group has internal differences, like um, class-based differences, nation is used to emphasize the unity of the whole through no, no, no nation, properly speaking, Oh, though no nation, properly speaking, is composed of two or more ethnicities. That might be a controversial statement, huh? Mm -hmm. No nation is com um, composed of two or more ethnicities. Now, wh what he means by that is, so America, we have, we're called the melting pot, right? Yeah. But we really only have one people group. Yeah. Americans. But we don't have a shared identity as a people group. Which we should be. Yes. Um, you know, what is that? We call it a melting pot, but what does it turn into? You know, you wouldn't a call... A complete hellscape? <laughs> no. I mean, we're a melting pot, but um, we haven't melted together. It's yeah. more like we've separated, like, water and oil. Well, you know, you don't call, like, a bundle of carrots, sticks, meat sauce. Yeah. And then melt it down and then go, like... Oh, that's still carrots, or that's still uh, that's still potatoes. That's still yeah. The divide in America right now is a direct result of failed multiculturalism. Yeah, um, we cannot mix together. It doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So to clarify, <laughs> just for the record, I'm not talking about race. I'm talking about different cultures. Yeah, like multiculturalism is the fact that. We have different backgrounds, and oftentimes they don't mix together. Yeah, um, like, well, Catholicism and Protestantism. Yeah. Um, but even it? they, I mean, we would mix better with Catholics than we would with um, Muslims. Yeah, but can you really mix together Protestants and Roman Catholics? At the end of the day, no, but I think we're in a place where we, at least temporarily, can join hands with them until the the first enemy is defeated yeah um yeah it's kind of hard to you can't really mix buddhism with christianity no or secularism oh that's the big one can you mix it like well actually you can mix secularism and buddhism together because they don't really care yeah well buddhism just tries to mix everything together but it doesn't work doesn't work at all anyways we are way off 
let's get into the next section, which is, guess what? On ethnicity. <laughs> oh, wow. Really hang the... So here's the second paragraph on 136. <clears throat> ethnicity as something experienced is familiarity with others based on common language, manners, customs, stories, taboos, rituals, calendars, social expectations, duties, loves, and religion. These permit the ease of action and communication, the efficient completion of common projects, clarity of mutual understanding, and the ability to achieve the highest ideals and works of civil life. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah. I'm fine defining it that way. Sounds great to me. So just for the record, when he says ethnicity, he's not talking about skin color. No, that's a... He's not really even, like, talking about, like... I think he's just talking about, like, people groups, like Americans. Yeah, well, yeah, but even Americans, I don't know if we really count as a people group. We have people groups within a larger, I guess, people group that don't mix together. <laughs> so I don't know how that works. Mm -hmm. It's... A, Multiculturalism is a failed experiment. Basically. All right. Now, this is, I think, part that is... Um, I'll just get your thoughts on it, Kendrick. 138, second paragraph, first sentence. Blood relations refers to natural relations that originate several generations back, often emphasizing ancestry known in story and myth among one's kin alright so I can see where someone would go the kinism route with this mm -hmm. now let me read the top of 139 nations today are not built around bloodlines stretching back to arch patriarchs but blood relations remain relevant to nations when referring to one's ancestral connection to a people and place back to time immemorial the originating source for one's affection of people and place is his natural relations, those of his kin. But the ties of blood do not directly establish the boundaries of one's ethnicity. Rather, one has ethnic ties of affection because one's kin conducted life with other kin in the same place. Mm -hmm. I can see how someone would read that and say, Oh, kinism! Mm -hmm. But one more thing before I get your thought. And this is the part, this is the kicker right here, top of 140. Mm -hmm. My intent here is not to discount or dismiss the importance of blood ties in ethnogenesis, a dismissal that is fashionable, politically correct, and could save me some trouble, which is true. He's gotten a lot of trouble for this. Mm -hmm. It simply is the case that a community in blood is crucial to ethnicity. But this should not lead us to conclude that blood ties are the sole determinant of ethnicity, as if all we need are, need are DNA tests. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts? I know that's a lot to set up. <laughs> my thoughts are is that my thoughts are that God wants God loves a a pe God wants a people from every nation, oh, every tribe, boy. every tongue. Here we go. Every nation. Every nation, Are every you tribe. There will be distinct nations now. Every tribe, every <laughs> ton. Look, you know, I don't, I don't believe in kinism. I believe in every tribe, every ton, every nation. Okay, Boom. there we go. Roasted. Amen. Amen. I'm just joking. Take that, wolf! You dirty, rotten kinist. <laughs> All right, so 
the way I read it, to me, it's sort of like... To me, it's sort of like the French. Okay. Uh, that's actually the Italians. Actually, the Italians. There we go. All right. Um, there's... Right now, there are probably 100,000 uh, Muslims and uh, Middle Eastern people flocking to... France. Well, flock, flocking to Italy. Oh, yeah. Sorry, yeah. Well, in um, France, too. Yeah. Yeah. But they're passing through Italy to get to France. Yeah. Um, so, that's, like, what have been one of the uh, major, like... That's, like, been a major problem in Italy. Uh-huh. And that's why the Prime Minister did, she, did what she did. And so, the problem is, is that you don't have... You have these, um, you have these Middle Eastern people going into Italy. Man, I really sound, I don't sound like it, but I kind of, but they're not appropriating into the Italian. Uh, yeah, they're not integrating. They're bringing their culture with them. Yeah, they're and not, a whole lot of crime. They're, uh, they're not, they're not integrating their culture with the Italian ethnos. Uh-huh. Boom, Greek. <laughs> um, and so they're not integrating it with the uh, with the ethnos, and that's why there's uh, well, besides the mafia, um, like a bunch of crime. Now, would there be crime without it? Yes, but would there be? But there is more crime because of it. Yeah, there'd be less crime. We can say that. Yeah, we could say that there would be less crime. Yeah, I think what he's saying is, look. Blood relations do bring a shared culture. Mm-hmm. They do. That's undeniable. Mm-hmm. Um, your culture with your family is going to be way different from cultures with other families. Mm-hmm. Like even me and my wife, we have different cultures in our families. Mm-hmm. Her family is usually late to everything, and my family is usually early to everything. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so that's obviously, I mean, true. No family is the same. Mm-hmm. So blood relations, when it comes to shared culture... Is important, mm-hmm. but he's not saying that's the sole determinant mm-hmm. of ethnicity, because really a nation is built up of households, which are going to have those little nuanced differences, mm-hmm. but they're going to have a shared culture on the big things. Okay, I can blow this whole controversy aside okay. just right. with one thing. So, whenever the Israelites went into Israel, uh-huh. they were they were told to have the foreigner. You know, come in and except from Moab and uh, yeah, other people. Strangely enough, <laughs> um, they were like, "Okay, allow them to integrate." And even with the Moabites, you know, even with the even with Ruth, she was a Moabite. Yeah. So yeah, sure, that's fine. That's not what Wolf is like attacking here. Mm-hmm. What Wolf's attacking is the is the integration of the Moabitists and the Hittite. Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, He's saying Israel does not integrate into the Moabite. Yeah, he does. Nor do they like. Nor they. Nor do they even share the culture. Yeah, I mean, read all the passages about intermixing in Israel. Didn't go well for them, mm-hmm. and a lot of them died because of it. But the time that it did went well is whenever um, is whenever the Hittite or yeah, I mean Uriah was a Hittite and he probably worshipped the one true God of Israel. Mm-hmm. Which kind of made it bad whenever, you know. <laughs> yeah. 
I need to talk about that. <laughs> well, we don't need to talk about that. I mean, but yeah, that's the point. I hope maybe that wasn't clear, but the point is he's he's not a chemist. Boom. <laughs> Discussion over. There we go. That was the definitive apologetic for Stephen Wolf. Yes, and I. I'm, I'm not even a big fan of Stephen Wolf, honestly. Yeah. I never. Yeah, this is Steve. Yeah, Stephen Wolf. Uh, yeah, man, I can't believe. <laughs> There's two wolves. Yeah, I always get confused, and so. You know, um, I'm not even that much of a fan of Wolf, but you know, I feel like I need to like. I feel like I need to offend him. It's sort of like I, f- I feel bad for him. You know. I like Wolf. I mean, I have some pretty strong disagreements with him. Yeah, exactly. But I like his personality. Yeah, I'm. Well, I'd his, get along with him if we had beers together. His personality is like not the main issue. Yeah, I know. It's his oh, millennialism with us. It's and his, his tomism. And his tomism. But but less th- less for me the tomism than it is for you, I think. But you know, I don't even mind him. I just feel bad for him. Yeah, he's been misrepresented, laughably so. Yeah, I think his ideas are actually pretty good. Yeah. Well, let's keep going. We got this is going to be a long one. It's going to be two hours. All right. Um, next section: principle of similarity. Members of ethnic groups share similarities that are distinct to them. They possess similarities not only with regard to their common humanity, but also in particulars. By particulars, I refer to what one cannot ascribe to all mankind, or, to put positively, it refers to features culture that can be ascribed to only some people. So think to the intro. When we think particulars, we automatically think, you know, sinful differences. Mm. But think about, you know, pre-fall off nations had formed. Mm. Those nations would still have particulars, and they would not be sin. Mm. Um, oh, I got it. Rice. <laughs> okay. No, hear me out. All right. So, um, Mexicans have like uh, a specific way they make rice. Uh-huh. It's called the uh, Spanish rice or mm-hmm. Mexican rice. But anyways, um, you know, uh, but Chinese have a but the Chinese have a different way of making rice. Heck, I would say that um, probably everyone in Asia has a different way to make rice. Um, I'm not trying to be racist or anything like that, but it's just a fact, you know. Uh-huh. Um, uh, weird meat, meat, weird meat meets a side of rice. You know, that's sort of like that's like the particular. That's like what's the weird meat, Kendrick? Well, the weird meat for like cats. Meat. No. Are you saying Asians eat cats? No, I'm just saying that like, for instance, uh, Mexicans eat the ton of a cow. Oh yeah, that's gross. And cow hook. Well, actually, they make. It's not really that popular now, but the cow. You would boil the cow hoofs into like a stew. No, you would put the cow hoofs in the stew and you would make it. Um, All right, get out of my home. We don't have a then, shared culture anymore. And then there's like uh, <laughs> some Asians partake in monkey brains, which. Uh, <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, we're so canceled after this episode. No, it's true. Like the Indiana Jones uh, Temple of Doom. No, I'm serious. I. <laughs> I mean, I, I believe you. <laughs> I actually, you like know this stuff. Uh, I believe you. 
but it's like weird meets weird meets meets side of our ice you know that's a that's actually a quote from like uh, how i met your mother but hmm. anyways i'm not i'm not where are we even going with this i forgot that particular i the uh principle of similarity oh, yes. and differences yeah the particular i was yeah. saying that basically it's not really a sinful way there's no simple way to cook um, to yeah. cook rice, but I'm saying that like Spanish and you know, Spanish and Asian people have like different ways. Yeah, and to hop on that on page 142, um, second paragraph, the human instinct to socialize and dwell with similar people is universal. Though for many today, especially Westerners, this is this instinct is understood as evil or pathological. Of course, such people typically denounce this evil when found among Westerners while celebrating the ethnocentrism of others. But this instinct in itself is good, actually, even universally good. Your instinct to conduct everyday life among similar people is natural, and being natural, it is good for your good to, yeah. I mean, that's just true. Yeah, um, you know, I probably eat more Mexican... I eat more like American and Mexican food than I eat Chinese food. Uh-huh. That yeah. means I probably wouldn't get together with a large part portion of, the, of America. I'll dwell. I'll be with those who like have a shared like food. Yeah. Well, this is what's happened on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Just to point it out. So they were screaming Stephen Wolf is a chemist, right? Mm-hmm. And the war broke out in Israel. And all the talk shifted to Israel, Israelites or Jews have a right to defend themselves to maintain their Jewish borders. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just to point out the inconsistency here. Mm-hmm. Now, I know that the Jews allow some Palestinians in to live there, but that's not what they're talking about. What? What's funny to me is that oh, we sent we're negotiating uh, border security and uh, <laughs> and we sent like 8 billion dollars to uh, to Israel to Israel and Ukraine and to defend their borders even before the war broke out all the money we sent for the Iron Dome mm-hmm. like, yeah. come on you gotta be kidding me but you know we uh we have to uh, sue to to get razor wire on our board. Right. Yeah, that's absurd. All right. All right, let's keep going. We got so much more to go. All right, next section. Anything else on that before no. I move on? Okay. 145. The principle of difference. If some set of goods are made possible only in conditions of similarity, then a similar multikin people an example, an ethnic group, must be a self-conscious in-group. Only then are they able to conserve the conditions of similarity when confronted with encroaching difference. And Multi-kin, I, huh? That's interesting. Yeah. And honestly, I think Stephen Wolf would say, yeah, I was right with my rice analogy. Yeah. That, that there are different ways to make rice. Mm-hmm. And honestly, Spanish people will like, would like Spanish rice more. Mm-hmm. Uh Vietnamese rice would Vietnamese people will probably hate Spanish rice well I'm thinking about it this way I mean the rice might not be an extreme enough example to get this point across but let's think about this so you have a culture 
and let's say everyone shows up to work at six o'clock. Mm-hmm. Dead six o'clock, finish at five. Okay. Mm-hmm. We get these foreigners that come in and they say, actually, I'm going to show up to work at eight o'clock mm-hmm. and we're going to leave at three. That's going to disrupt the workforce mm-hmm. if all of society has ordered itself around there. Mm-hmm. And then you have foreigners come in and say we're working different times. Exactly. So it's not that the different times are necessarily sinful. That might work better for other cultures. Mm-hmm. But for this culture, that's going to be disruptive. Mm-hmm. And um, some wor- some warehouses, some, well... Some workforces will fire you just for like wanting to get up at like eight. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So that I mean that's I don't know. I hope that gets the point across. But there's one more thing I highlighted on this section um, on page 146. Rather, it recognizes that particularity is necessary for civic fellowship and living well. Dissimilar people have trouble forming and sustaining a political community. When foreigners enter in mass, they undermine and disrupt the host people's civil fellowship in symbiosis, generating hostility and antipathy. Um, the idea that diversity destroys unity, as Althusius wrote, was well recognized in the Christian tradition. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> everything we just said. Everything we just said. All right. Well, anything else on that section? Because <laughs> I think that pretty much summarizes it. That is actually what's it. I, I think that's good. Okay. Let's get to uh, section four. Actually, there's one more thing before we go there that I highlighted on 148 at the end of it. Um, people of different ethnic groups can exercise respect for difference, conduct some routine business with each other, join in inter-ethnic alliances for mutual good, and exercise common humanity like the Good Samaritan, but they cannot have a life together that goes beyond mutual alliance. Yeah, so... Think World War Two. Different cultures decided, hey, we're going to join hands and fight together. They were still n- distinct nations at the end of the day, though. Yeah, um, yeah. It's not, you know. I think Stephen Wolf got too much hate for what he had. Mm-hmm. I don't think he's a kinist. Yeah, he's not preaching hatred for other um, how he defines ethnicities. He's not even saying like you should not, you should marry your own kind or like. He's even saying you should have mutual respect. Yeah. So it's like, guys, did you read the book? <laughs> did you read it? You guys need to chill out, man. I know. I think it's just this book has become a proxy war in Christian nationalism, and they're not going to read it fairly. They yeah. just want something to an- attack. And, and the, I think the less danger, a lesser danger, is that people see the see the attacks on the wolf. Yeah. And then they go like, oh, we should go harder on yeah, Kenism. Exactly. And I think that is a lesser extent, honestly, though, for like um, than like um, than just a full multicultural route. Yeah, yeah, I know. Well, let's get into part four of this chapter: loving the neighbor. And this first part of this uh, section is degrees of love, which we've talked about quite a bit already. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on page one fifty. Um, Kind of towards the middle of the first paragraph. We are not therefore to love all equally alike, an idea that flows from the ignorance of the relations which God has fixed among men, unto which he has annexed those special duties, which are to be discharged by a special love one to another. 
there are some whom we ought to be more concerned for than others. Mm-hmm. So, right off the bat, someone's probably going to hear that and be very offended. Tim, <clears throat> we should love everyone <laughs> the same. First off, God does not love everyone the same. Second off, you're a liar if you're saying that because you love your kids more than other kids. Yes, and I don't have kids. <laughs> I mean, this is basic. You love your mom more than my mom. Exactly. This is just so natural. I don't know how you could dispute it. Yeah, and honestly, I'm not sure how you could asso- associate love all the same. With yeah, like that's impossible. Whenever you read Romans 5. Uh-huh. Uh, Jesus, imagine like saying like <laughs> saying love all people the same, and yet he says uh, someone would scarcely love uh, love a bad person with. But think about this: God causes it to rain on the just and the unjust. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that rain comes and will grow the crops mm-hmm. of the unjust. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe that was talking negatively, but you know. Um, the rain can still cause the crops to grow of the unjust. That's a way God loves them. Mm-hmm. But that's a different love than the elect God, love God has for his elect. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I forgot where I was going to go. Where <laughs> well, I was gonna that's go. all right. We can move on. I had a good quote. I had a good thing, too. Well, if it pops in your head, we'll, we'll go there. Um. Yeah, I mean, that's basic. I don't think when you really... We've already spent a lot of time discussing this idea, so mm-hmm. I don't feel like we need to touch much more on this chapter or this section. Um, the next section is types of love. And this one, um, he, he says there's three types of love, benevolence, beneficence, and complacence. And this is where the book gets a little weird, in my opinion. Oh, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. Is that... Oh. <clears throat> I think one of the things that Jesus was talking about, I think that he was being countercultural with the parable of the Good Samaritan, mm-hmm. um, in the fact that people were loving their own kind too much, mm-hmm. and that um, showing that you know if someone just like rubbed you the wrong way, it was just immediately, oh, you're out of my circle, you know? Yeah. Again, I mean, you're to love your people first, and then everything else is an extension or. Um of, of right, charity yeah charity mm-hmm. towards other people but you can't have charity unless you first have your own people yeah exactly but they were hyper focused on just having your own people and staying behind your walls yeah exactly and what Jesus was saying was that look and yes I said countercultural. yes uh-huh. I uh, apparently I'm a youth pastor now <laughs> anyways uh, that he was just saying that you need to love them but now we've gone like full bore on the other side saying okay you should love you should love like yeah you're not allowed to love your family more than other families you're supposed to love the guy on the street yeah you're supposed to bring that immigrant into your home and treat him as though he is your like mother or something like that hey don't fall for that don't ever do it I'm just gonna say it don't do it Mm -hmm. you're putting your family in danger you're a man and you do that you're failing in your first and foremost duty to your family don't do it exactly but all right types of love benevolence beneficence and complacence so he starts by defining um beneficence which i was not super familiar with to be honest Mm -hmm. Um, beneficence is the actual doing of good which is universal in principle 
but is practically delimit, delimited by means and opportunity. Generosity with resources, for example, requires that you have resources, sorry socialists, and a suitable means of transferring those resources. The absence of either resources or means precludes the act of beneficence toward another. So the point is, you cannot extend beneficence if you don't first take care of your family and yourself. But we're supposed to, like, love everyone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, we are. They had all things the same, Tim, in the early church. We are supposed to love everyone, but in different ways. They had all things the same. They loved everyone else at the church like they loved their own mother. That's true, except it isn't. <laughs> All right, um, top of 153. Um, perhaps counterintuitively, the missing element is self-love. This one we may or may not disagree. We'll see. Let's see where he goes with this. Because immediately when he says self-love, I think we think to how our culture today defines it, which is just being a selfish piece of human garbage. <laughs> but let's see how he defines it. Actually, how the culture <laughs> defines it. And actually, he refers to Augustine mm, to define this for us. Augustine ranks self-love as a second of the four necessary loves, second to loving God. So saying loving God and then self-love. Mm-hmm. And considered it so obvious that there is no need of a command that every man should love himself as his own body. And then he says Aquinas states that a man ought out of charity to love himself more than he loves any other person. Finally, Willard reflects on the classical Protestant view saying self-love is the rule of loving our neighbor. So, I'm, he still hasn't really defined what self-love is. He's just saying, and early on, Augustine, Aquinas, and Willard all said it was important. Yeah. Well. Go ahead. Everyone loves himself naturally. Mm-hmm. Um, Which I think that's what he's getting at, because he's a natural law guy. Mm-hmm. So he's saying already naturally. It's not even something we have to learn to do. Mm-hmm. We just love ourselves. Yeah, I don't think he's talking about like going to like the store and saying, "Oh, I love myself today. I'm gonna go on a shopping spree." Yeah, I need to treat myself. Yeah, (laughs) please delete that. Um, (laughs) And so um, he's saying that basically, you know, you avoid getting a paper cut Mm -hmm. just naturally. But here's the thing: I think even beyond just naturally coming to us, Mm -hmm. I don't think it's wrong. To love yourself. And here's what I'm going to say before y'all think I'm a heretic. And this is where he's going with this concept. Putting yourself in a safe environment is loving yourself. Mm -hmm. Just saying, I'm not going to drive in the hood at midnight is actually loving yourself. Yeah. Um, What was it? Um, I think Bernard Clairvaux actually said that you should... that. You can do more good whenever you're alive. Yes. Uh-huh. Would you rather, like, kill yourself in that? In- well, mm-hmm. you know what I mean. Like, yeah. Go out into harm's way. Yeah. And then just, like, and just die whenever you could keep stay alive. And, well, do and if you don't love yourself and avoid that area, mm-hmm. you're actually hating your family. Yeah. Because if you die, well, guess what? You're hating your family. You, they lost, like, the breadwinner. You know, they mm-hmm. lost. Or their protector. Yeah, or their protector. Or the mother, or yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. But I think that's the point he's getting at. But he's gonna—he spilled a lot of ink on this uh, on this um, subject. So let's keep going. 
And this is where it gets really weird. And I'm not sure I fully understand what he's talking about. So maybe you can <laughs> shed some light where I don't understand Kendrick. But he talks about complacent self-love, which is on page 154. And here's what I have highlighted. Far from referring to indifference or smugness, complacent love refers to pleasing assent or delighting in some person or thing on account of something in or about the person or thing. In theology, it refers to God's God the Father's love for his Son, through whom he loves the church. And Protestant theologians once argued that the church deserves our love of complacency on account of God's love for it. I want to develop this love of complacency to explain and justify the sort of love for people and place that is irreducible either to well-wishing or doing good. So I understand the concept of him bringing up the Trinity, right? Mm -hmm. Obviously, there's that type of um, mutual love within the Trinity. God plus himself, basically. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, Now, where it's going to confuse me a little bit is how he applies this to the individual. Mm -hmm. So let's keep going. 155, second paragraph, second half. Complacent love for one's country is not simply delighting in its virtues, for all countries have virtues. Complacent love is a bounded love by principle reserved for one's own people and place. In view, it is not simply delighting in good, but a delight bound up with oneself in relation to his country and countrymen, a sort of union of affection. Mm-hmm. Now that I read that, I think I understand, actually. Yeah. Because he's saying, like the Trinity has that love in of itself. Okay. Mm-hmm. So there's kind of this symbiotic relationship between oneself and one's nation. Yeah. If you love yourself and you put yourself in a nation where you're protected, where you want to make better, that's also that that's that symbiotic relationship. I don't know really how to fully explain it. Yeah. Um, well, it's sort of like the. I think it's easier doing it the adverse way than rather than doing it the uh, inverse. <laughs> well, never mind. Anyways, <laughs> um, so we have people who do not love our country, right? Yeah. Well, they are really harming themselves because, Mm -hmm. well, Well, they're harming themselves and their neighbors. Like, let's say, let's take the whole defund the police thing. Yeah. Um, that will have ramifications upon themselves, upon their neighbors and upon them and their neighbors will help or will hate them. I think he's going with the natural, like, it's just natural that these things will happen mm-hmm. whenever you whenever you hate your whenever you hate your country. If you hate your country, your country will grow to hate you. If you love your country, your your country will love you, and therefore, you know, you should seek your own good in your country. Yeah, and okay, here's another thing I've highlighted that might help a little more. Um, in other words, among these people and in this place, one encounters himself. For a part of himself, phenomenologically speaking, is invested here. Wow, that's a long word. The delight in people and place is simultaneously a self-delight. This definition is admittedly difficult and novel. Yes, that is correct, Wolf. It is difficult. <laughs> and he said, so I'll take some time for clarification. So I think what he's getting to is... When you find yourself in a country that you love, mm-hmm. that's loving yourself, because you find that completeness, you find that like a puzzle piece fitting in, and 
building all of society that way. Okay. Um, yeah, that's exactly it. Um, mm -hmm. Whenever you build trees and whenever they were building, tr put, planting trees in Babylon, mm -hmm. they were really uh, loving themselves. They were loving themselves and loving the country by uh, by planting the trees for food and also be. A, so while you plant trees, you're providing food for people in Babylon, but also you're be beautifying Babylon. Mm -hmm. um, you're um, you're giving it food. You're giving it um, you're giving it uh, more beauty, and that's that's really flourishing the land by uh, loving yourself and by mm -hmm. growing that stuff. Yeah, I I was thinking like I think this might be like even having a sense of duty. That is loving yourself. Because yeah. if you don't have a sense of duty, you're just lost. A trash. Lost and complete. And trash. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Most people in society, I don't think, have a sense of duty anymore. That's because they're trash. But once you do, you do have a completeness to yourself, which is loving yourself. Mm -hmm. And I think that involves finding that place to fit in society. Yeah. So I think that might be what he's getting at. But this section is so weird, I could definitely be wrong. Um, anything else on that? I really have nothing else to say on that section. Let's go. All right, 158. Action and extending the self. Um, he says, one can deny his account of property rights and still see the principle at work. That such activity creates a relation between the actor and the thing acted upon, such that the subject and object are united with the self of the former, is extended into the latter, even to inanimate objects. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I think he's going to get to this later on. Mm -hmm. um, women have a distinct way. To me, it, it's almost kind of mystical, honestly. Mm. They have a way of making the house... Oh, yeah. We're going to get into this again. It's going to be the title of the uh, <laughs> of the podcast. Uh, of the making episode. a house. Uh -huh. Making a Home is where the heart is. There we go. And so, <laughs> you know, whenever you put, like, pictures up, men can't really do this. They, Women put them up in such a way that makes it feel complete. Like, I wouldn't even throw it away, honestly. I would just be like, okay, oh, that looks so pretty. Yeah, my wife is able to buy things. It just makes it a cozy environment. Yeah. Makes it feel like a home. I do things, and it's just like, ugh. <laughs> Well, it's like uh, that meme of the guy living alone. It's just a mattress on the floor and a TV. Exactly. It's like, how do guys live like this? And we're just like, well, all I need is a mattress and a TV. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then the fridge is just like water. A, a beer in the Hot Pocket. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, dang, my Hot Pockets. <laughs> yeah, um, that, I, yeah, that's a good example, I think, of what he's getting at. But he also says... Um, so we're talking about self-mastery. He says, self-mastery is not merely the control of our facilities and desires. It extends to things and places as an extension of our dominion. Just as we master our minds and bodies with care and love, so too do we master the world with care and love. He said the word. Dominion, oh no. Oh. It's in the Bible. Sorry. It's a he's a post-millennial. <laughs> he's a dominionist. Mm-hmm. No, but obviously he's talking about this is how you cultivate that affection for place and thing mm -hmm. is by taking dominion over it or taking ownership over it. Yeah. That's self-mastery. Mm -hmm. And, you know, 
there's something whenever I'm, whenever you know you make a table. <clears throat> yeah. It it turns into you. Yeah, that's like that has way more sentimental than just some table you're gonna buy at Walmart or something. Or even if you make a table without screws. Like without screws at all, like um like a real like craft. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, you put a lot of work into it. Well also well you know, you make the joints to like place the uh Yeah. Yeah. And it's like interlock. Interlock, there yeah. we go. Yeah. <laughs> and then um but it's different, you know, than just buying a table at Hobby Lobby. Yeah, cheaply mass-produced table. Also, it doesn't have your blood on it, but... That's true. <laughs> <laughs> you got to get that blood sacrificed. <laughs> you, too. <laughs> uh, but 160, this is the important part of this section. Um, bottom paragraph. This is really where it connects. Broadening this analysis to nations... We can see that through a people's dominion-taking and dominion-sustaining activity, the people as a corporate entity has owned space. This owned space is not simply a combination of individual legal ownership. It is a whole that transcends its parts. Yes and amen. To have a functioning society, a healthy society, you need people that see the society and want to take ownership over it and want to steward it well. Mm. When I look out my window, mm. I see trash everywhere. Mm. People just throw their trash out the window. Mm. We live in a society where half the population wants a welfare check and the other half wants to work. Yeah. Um, I'm going to quote something, someone huh. that is going to give me a lot of trouble amongst the Christian, amongst okay. the reform circles. All right. It's J. It's the rich theologian John F. Kennedy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, ask not what your uh, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But we have an entitled populace, and the government has mm-hmm. fed this desire by handing out money mm-hmm. instead of having people cultivate a job where they function and fit into society. By the way, this is not an ad. This is not part. Paid by <laughs> RFK. Yeah. <laughs> Besides the... Uh, it is paid for by Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> no, but seriously, I mean, you can see this divide pretty easy. People don't steward the place they live. Um, they're entitled. They just want to take, but they don't want to take dominion. So, yeah, that's really where it hits the road. But let's keep going. We're close to the end. Ten more pages. Idolatry, on page 161. One expected objection to this understanding of complacent self-love is that it constitutes idolatry or ethno-narcissism. It is difficult to respond to an accusation of idolatry today because the term is lazily deployed against those who love something too much. Mm. And you, you can see this an example by guys saying, um, hey, you need to get married and have kids. Mm-hmm. And the Gospel Coalition people will be like, you're making family an idol. Mm-hmm. No. What's making an idol about saying you need to get married and have kids? Yeah, I remember like in 2016, the libs were calling the uh, following the Bible yeah. a biblical idolatry. Yeah. But I mean, you, even amongst people who would say they're Bible-believing, which... With the Gospel Coalition, that's debatable. 
But um, they'll say, well, even if you are married and have kids and you love them too much. You're loving your kids too much. That's you're making an idol out of them. How dare you make a children out of your idol? You need to send them <laughs> to public school. Maybe loving your kids that much comes natural and is from God. Well, it is from God. You know, you need to love your kids. I mean, yeah, it's not making. I mean, I, I suppose you can make an idol, but the way they use it is so broad that just seemingly loving your kids a lot mm-hmm. to them is making an idol out of them, which is just absolutely silly and absurd. Making your kids like an making the kids like your idol, I think would look like, you know, them walking all over you and them being. Oh yeah. Like, or I mean. Even like excessive spending on your kids, like your kid needs to have a new toy every other day or something. Exactly. But that's not what they're talking about. They're talking more like, no, you you need to, um, if you even seem like you love your kids a lot, that's an idol. Mm-hmm. You need to love your kids on the same level as every other kid. Yeah, which is basically nothing. Yeah, it's dumb. Mm-hmm. Absolutely dumb. Um, he concludes it, but I'm not really going to cover that part. Last section of the book. We're close. We're so close. Nationalism. This is where, like, he, like, this is where he basically just says, yeah, this is what the book's about. Yeah. (laughs) He's like, we finally got to it, guys. Nationalism. We're 163 pages in, and he finally got to nationalism. We love love Wolf, just want to clarify. Yeah, I know. He's building his case, and we appreciate that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But uh, here on page 164. This is where we get the meat, finally, at the end. Uh, Middle of the first paragraph. Nor do I call for ethnostates in the modern sense, though I do affirm that each nation ought to seek and have sufficient political and social autonomy to order and secure themselves according to their particularity. Yes. And then he gives his definition from the introduction. Um, Nationalism refers to a totality of national action consisting of civil laws and social customs Um, an example, culture, conducted by a nation as a nation in order to procure for itself both earthly and heavenly good. And here he says, put simply, nationalism refers to a nation acting as a nation for its national good. Mm -hmm. Amen. All right, we already talked about this. But patriotism and nationalism are basically the same thing. Yes. I would say that you know, there's a reason why uh, George Washington and all of them were just like, look, you know, we should get, we should not go into like other people's business. Mm-hmm. We should instead just focus on our own stuff. Yeah. Yeah, this stuff is so basic. I don't know how anyone can disagree with it. I think that's why the nationalists are winning the Twitter debates, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I saw a poll that was put out. It's like, are you a Christian nationalism? Nationalist, and obviously it's a reformed page. It's Christians responding, mm-hmm. and it was like eighty to twenty percent, eighty pro Christian nationalism and twenty not. Mm-hmm. So it's well, like, yeah, we're winning, guys. Are you seriously not going to love your country? Yeah, the and I bet you the twenty percent are maybe they just don't like the title Christian nationalism, or maybe some atheists voted. In That's there. what I think. I think yeah. that it's most likely some atheists or libs. Yeah. But, you know, to go around and say that you hate your country, I think, honestly, you should just get out. No, they wouldn't say that. I mean, they mean that, but they wouldn't say that. They just say, no, you need to love the whole world. No. 
You should love your country. <laughs> well, I don't. I won't say no to that. I'm just saying, guys, think about it. You're supposed to love your country more than other places. That doesn't mean you don't love other places. Yeah. And, and we, by love, we're not saying that we like other places. Mm-hmm. We're saying we want to seek those other countries good. Mm-hmm. No, you should seek your own country's good. And maybe, maybe, if you want to seek other people's good, you should, you know, invest heavily into your country. There is a reason why peop- everyone thinks that um, Sweden and all those uh, Nordic countries are all socialists. Mm. They actually aren't. Um, in fact, if you look at it, um, they're able to do those social programs because of the fact that they have been so focused on their good. Yeah, I mean, we would be able to do that, too, if we weren't sending all our money overseas. Yeah. We're more invested in other citizens than our own, and that's why we can't close our own borders. Yeah, that's why we have, uh, like, every. that's why we have bridges collapsing, uh, trains. <laughs> like That's why derailed. the roads are absolute garbage. Dude, the roads have just been <laughs> deplorable. And mind you, Biden was in, I'm sorry, going to get political <laughs> here, uh, 2008, well, from 2008, all the way to 2016, Biden was in charge with inf- infrastru- of for infrastru- infrastructure. Infrastructure, yeah. And he's just been like, no, he's like the infrastructure president. He's supposed to be. Yeah. What has it got done? Nothing. Nothing. There's like, I mean, he's built other countries' infrastructure, so that's yeah. good, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> BlackRock. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyways, I, yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Mm-hmm. I mean. Love for other countries should come from the overflow of the love for your own country. Yeah. But we are backwards on that here in America. Yeah. I'm not even saying that social programs are good or, well, actually, I probably think that social programs are bad. Most of them, yeah. But I would say that Sweden has done so good in loving itself, loving its own country, that it has overflowed. Like, they're like, what do we do with this money? Oh, we'll just give it to the poor. Why not? Yeah. I mean, that's not necessarily bad. I mean, I don't think it's the government's job to have social programs. Mm-hmm. That should be on the church. But anyways, yeah. I mean, it's better than what is here in America. So let's keep moving. Uh, 166. The national will presupposes a positive and protective national disposition toward the nation and the place in which the nation dwells. The people affirm that this place is ours. Yes. I'm just going to pause there for a second. This place is ours. We actually live here. Yeah. It's it's almost like you can't even say that today. That's that's why uh, I don't like littering because of climate change. I don't like littering because it's like nasty. Yeah. It looks disgusting. Mm. Um, yeah. You can't say this place is ours. This, this land is everybody's. No, it's ours. Yeah. Well, you can say it's, it's the Native Americans, though. Or you can say that it's like someone else's except for yeah. anyone else. Uh, anyways, the people affirm that this place is ours. They have a collective sense of owned space. It follows that the principle of exclusion is necessary is a necessary object of the national will. Yes, some people should not be here. Yeah, I think that's why well, we have borders. <laughs> I mean, come on. Well, actually, I was thinking of a mass deportation of a certain people in Washington, D.C. Well, yeah, that'd be great, too, wouldn't it? Yeah. By certain people, I mean the government. (laughs) (laughs) By all government officials. Drain the swamp, baby. (laughs) 
No, but you're right. I mean, if you are not a person that um, wants to steward this country, please leave. I mean, there's a reason why FDR was, like, the first one to serve, like, three terms. But everyone else, like, served, like, one term or two terms, and that was it. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. If if you don't have the mentality to steward, but you have the mentality to take, you don't you don't belong here. Exactly. And I'm fine saying that. Yeah. Um, he also says on page 167, the principle of exclusion does not preclude the reception of foreigners. Absolutely. Nations ought to be hospitable. Um, at the individual and familial levels, hospitality demands generosity to strangers, especially to those in need. So like the Israel passages everyone wants to talk about, this is what he's saying. Yeah. He's saying that you should be nice to them, but mm-hmm. come on, you don't need to... Ex- Unless they like, oh gosh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say socialize, but yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Unless yeah. they like, oh, they, uh, unless they socialize into your ethnos. Mm-hmm. I mean, why? I mean, why should they stay? Or I mean, think about it. Wait, he might even say this. Mm-hmm. Let's keep going. I think he says it later on before oh. I steal that idea. My bad. No, you're oh, fine. You're fine. Oh, it's your idea. Um, bottom of 167, the foreigner's fundamental principle is conformity. To the greatest extent possible, they are not a, at home, but guests in another's home. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, I mean, think about it. When you're at someone else's home, you're going to act in a way that acknowledges this is not my home. I'm a guest here. Yeah. I'm so it's not even like you have to conform and, you know, take up all the cultural practices, but it's like, all right, I am in a foreign place, so I need to behave myself. Yeah, I mean, you're not going to go up to, like, your neighbor's house and go, like, I demand cake. Yeah, exactly. I would like you to try that. That's what they do here, though. Yeah. I demand you give me a debit card and a cell phone. And healthcare. Yeah, exactly. And free food. It's so backwards. Mm-hmm. All right, we're on the conclusion now. So we're close to the end, guys. I said that three times, but now we're actually there. Conclusion on page 169. Ultimately, the modern Westerner resides in another's land. This is true not because he stole it centuries earlier, but because he keeps and maintains it for the taking of outsiders whom he invites and whom he ultimately dispossesses him. Indeed, his own dispossession has become the Westerner's only good. Thus, Western man whose birth rates have plummeted creates well-ordered spaces and civil institutions not for himself and his natural progeny, but for his replacements. Yeah. Man, that gets me fired up. Do you think that immigrants really think, oh, we're just here to share this space yeah. together? No, it's really... The, our land is right for the taking. Our birth rates are plummeting. Mm-hmm. They're like, I just got to wait this out. But Tim, uh, what was it? Oh, gosh, I forgot the term, but it's like there's not enough land for everyone. Overpopulation. <laughs> there's enough land. But they don't have to come to America to get it. They can find land in other Dude, places. There, have you been to West Texas? Oh, there's tons of land, man. Yeah. I mean, even Oklahoma. I mean, just tons of land. Canada is like 30% inhabited. Yeah, Ohio is like 90% corn. I mean, come on. <laughs> Nebraska is like, 80, <laughs> is like 100% corn. Yeah, but he's right. This is right. That's right on the nose. I mean, it's happening right now in front of our faces with the illegal immigration from the border. Mm -hmm. They're taking our kids' homes. Mm -hmm. If you have kids. Yeah. 
and last paragraph on 171. I say all this because, in my estimation, the primary obstacle for the embrace of nationalism is modern Western psychology. If you do not eradicate or suppress the habits of the mind at best, suppress natural aspirations for the natural greatness or at worst, project your aspirations on the other to whom you toss your national birthright, then you'll never fully embrace nationalism and ultimately your people will self-immolate and national suicide. So he's saying we got kind of this self-hatred here in America, which is true. Yeah. It's just inherent, but he's saying... No, you need to set that aside, what you've been trained, Mm -hmm. and you need to let those natural affections take over and quit suppressing them. Quit acting like you hate yourself. So with that, we're going to conclude. We're going over Chapter 4 next time, which is Perfecting Your Nation, a Christian nation, which should give some interesting conversation. Mm. But I want to say... Look, it's not wrong to love where you live. It's not long, wrong to seek the best for where you live over other places. Um, protect yourself. Protect your family. Don't be stupid. And if you don't do that, you're actually hating your neighbor and everyone else. So with that, we will see you on the next episode.